Good morning. Greetings to each of you in the name of Jesus this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, to chapter 17. I would like to uh, give an exposition, not on the full chapter this time, but on one verse. Let's read that verse, John 17, verse 26. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them them. To expound on that, we're going to look at John chapter 5. Let's turn there. Verse 19 through 27. Why don't I just have us all stand for the reading of this passage? Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Let's read verse 20 in unison. For the Father loveth the Son and sheweth him all things that himself doeth. And he will shew him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Verse 22 in unison. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Verse 26 in unison. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Our title this morning is Love, God's Way. Love God's way. I would like to say probably more than any other sermon I've ever preached this morning, I feel like not only am I preaching to myself, but I'm preaching because of myself, my own need. That's where the burden of this message came from. 
I've uh, heard the story told of a father, a farmer, who uh, it would instruct his boys as they would be getting the uh, harvester equipment ready, and uh, they know they're going to be doing a lot of harvesting, you know it's a dangerous time of year, and they're sharpening the blades, and he's getting his harvest equipment ready, and he tells his boys now, boys, never get your fingers close to the teeth and the cogs on this harvesting equipment when it's running. And so he was instructing his boys and they were getting the harvesting equipment ready. And one day that year, he was out and he was harvesting. And the harvester was running. He was driving his tractor and he hears a strange noise and he looks back and he sees that there was some stalks that clogged it. And the PTO is running. He knows it's going to be hard to get it unclogged. And he thinks, you know what? I need the extra force that pull from the PTO so that um, when I unclog that thing, it will pull it through the rest of the way. And he had to get his gloves on that day. He says, uh, got these gloves. That's some extra protection. And that stalk is long. I can uh, yank it without getting my hand too close. And so he walked back there and left the PTO running and uh, he puts his hand and he yanks on that uh, stalk and the thing starts moving and somehow the tip of his glove gets caught in the cogs and pulls his hand in and takes four of his fingers. And just not long before he was telling his boys, he would raise his hands and say, think of the raised hand. Stop. Do not get close to the harvester when it's running. His hand looked like this. And then the next harvesting year, he was telling his boys they're getting the harvesting equipment ready. And he says, boys, never get your fingers close to the harvesting equipment. But this time his hand looked like this. Maybe like this. And his boys could rightfully say, but dad, what about you? Why don't you practice what you preach? I would uh, present myself this morning. I'm the father saying, never get your fingers close to the harvesting equipment. I'm not the father that can say this. And uh, I lack four fingers. And I need to understand the love of God. And I'm hungry to understand the love of God. The reason I'm hungry to understand the love of God is because I recognize my futility in this world. I recognize my futility in the church. I recognize my futility as a father, as a husband, and really a contributor in any kind of good way to society without having the love of God. <clears throat> without having love in my heart God's way. And uh, I have much to learn. I need to understand what is love God's way. What is it? Three things. <clears throat> um, questions that I hope that we can answer till we are done looking at the word here this morning. 
One is, I hope that we can answer, as, as I've already expressed my desire, I hope that we can answer what he's talking about in verse 26 of John 17. <clears throat> now, I felt a calling this summer to preach on this chapter, and I preached on it a lot. Uh, but I always felt a great inadequacy when I came to verse 26. And uh, recognize its, its, its importance in, in the whole scheme of things. But... Uh, I know there's a well there that needs to be, <clears throat> a long rope needs to be sent down to dig out of a deep, to, to take water out of a deep well. I have declared unto them thy name, Jesus says to his Father, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. And I may be in them. Without having this love in you, you will not have him in you. We profess a lot when you profess to be a Christian that has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, has Jesus living in us. And yet, we fall so far short of having the love God's way. We need the love to be in us. God's kind of love. How do we measure it? How do we uh, express it? How do we define it? We're going to look at that more in depth, but I, I believe the biggest answer to that question, to, to understand what it is so that we can get a hold of it, we can experience it, we can accept it, and we can receive it, and we can revel in it, and we can share it then with all these people <clears throat> around us. I think the answer was looking at God's example. Yes, his example for his love for mankind, but the foundation to that, as we will see, is his example for how he loved the Son. How the Son loved the Father. <clears throat> so, I, I hope we can answer the question, what kind of love is this that is supposed to be in us? <clears throat> um. Thank you, Josh. That was very timely. You brought a question I'd like to uh, deal with. That uh, angel, a little or a big, actually tall young man, I believe he is, in the city of Lebanon, he asked the question, why did God give us choice? When he knew that we were going to spurn it, when he knew that it was going to bring devastation, and he knew it was going to bring problems, why didn't God just make us do what he wants us to do? <clears throat> Wasn't it foolish for God to create a man as a creature of choice, knowing that man would reject him? I hope we can answer that question. <clears throat> Another question that uh, has been bringing on my heart Go with me to a scene, a group of ministers are gathered together and uh, talking about the uh, increasing iniquity of the world around us. And one church leader raises the question, does God love the homosexual? And another church minister responds by saying, well, one time I was um, at a, 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 uh, on the streets witnessing 
I'm not sure if they met up with a gay pride show or something like that, and there was a bunch of uh, homosexuals there, and they were aggressive, and they were speaking, and they were doing their thing, and and uh, he says, my daughter walked up to one of those men and handed her a track, and he said, <clears throat> the the report, the, the, the return from the, the man who was the homosexual said, okay, Bible, huh? Got a question for you. Does God love the homosexual? And the young lady said, Yes, God loves the homosexual. So there's some discussion. There's maybe a little bit of tension in the air. Does God love the homosexual? Does he not love the homosexual? One person gave the response, God loves the homosexual as a person, but he does not love the homosexual as his behavior. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And of course, that principle would apply to many other sins beyond homosexual. But uh, God's word does speak the most specifically and graphically, perhaps more than any other sin, of his hatred. Of his hatred for that sin. And uh, the Bible gives us many things about his hatred for sin. His hatred for the wicked. His anger. Proverbs tells us that he is angry with the wicked every day. Does God love the homosexual? The hardened heart, purposeful, antagonistic, flying in the face of Christianity, throwing the Christians in jail, or working with the politics of our country to do so. The Bible says he is angry with the wicked. He hates the wicked. For our foundation, let's go now to John chapter 5. These verses that we read. Jesus is speaking about his relationship with the Father. He's addressing the antagonistic Pharisees. They're questioning of who is this man. Not only did he break the Sabbath, but now he says that God is his father. And as they're giving these accusations, he doesn't meld away and try to modify his statement so that he doesn't leave such a clear message whether or not he claims to be the Son of God. No, Jesus faces that head on and he goes into this discourse saying, giving us a whole list of things that he says, indeed, I verify I am equal with God, <clears throat> the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, there also doeth the Son likewise. Everything God does, I do. What a claim. What a claim. Father raised the... As the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. There's a bit of arbitrariness in that. Arbitrarily, he has the ability as the omniscient, all-knowing, predestinating God to 
quicken whoever he will. It's up to man's choice. But God, in that blending of his knowing who will choose and who will respond, he quickens whom he will. Son, the same as the Father. What we're seeing here is a list of things that Jesus directly and clearly, without any ambiguity, says, this is what has been given to the Son. These are ways in which I am like the Father. This is ways in which proves my divinity. So we are seeing here, in this list, we are seeing God the Father, how that He loves the Son. A principle that we will see, I think, on, on, on all levels here this morning, is that God, in His love, the Son, in His love, uh, in their love to, to us, our love to Him on every level, our love to each other, love always involves giving. The greater the giving, the greater the love. How much did the Father give to the Son? How much did He give Him? How many gifts? To what extent did the Father love the Son? That can be measured by His gifts. And that is the context. Beginning verse 20, the Father loveth the Son. And here are the proofs. And here is the extent. He gives him all of the works of the Father in verse 20. Verse 22, he gives him the ability to quicken the dead, just as the Father. Uh, Verse uh, verse 21, verse 22, the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. He gives him the judgment. Now, if we look at... Uh, the classical view of a king, a ruler, a, a, a potentate that is, has all power over a group of people, and now God himself who has all power over all of humanity, the biggest, perhaps, quality of a king, a ruler, is one who can judge. This is right, this is wrong. You do this, you do that. These are the laws. Abide by them. Reinforce them. All these things. That's, that's a judge. <clears throat> And God has those qualities, but He's given all of those to the Son. That's how much the God the Father has loved the Son. That's how much He has given to, given for the Son. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. What is more important, what is more iconic about a king and a ruler than honor? He has given it. To the Son. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. 24, verily I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life, will not come into condemnation. So it's given to the Son. It's His Word that you need to hear to have everlasting life. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God in 25, and they that hear shall live. You have to hear His words, the Son, to live. 
as the Father has life in Himself, and He does, He has given, that word given is there again, He has given to the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him all authority. He's given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. That is how much the Father loves the Son. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of sermons. There's a lot of articles about God's love for mankind. But we greatly lack any teaching about God's love for Himself. God's love for Himself. And I would venture to say that without understanding God's love for Himself we, uh, at the least, are on a very shaky ground for understanding God's love for any of mankind. Uh, and, and even possibly we have no grounds whatsoever to understand anything else about the love of God. <clears throat> God's love for Himself. Now, could you say that about uh, <clears throat> Brad here, that the best way you can understand his love for anyone else in the world would be his love for himself? That already points to a difference between humanity and divinity. Why is that? Is that selfish of God? I remember as an 18-year-old grappling with that. I am a jealous God. And I was, I was being inspired and uplifted. I was going through my Bible and learning about the glory of God from Genesis to Revelation. He's jealous for His glory. He wants to display His glory. He wants us to understand His glory. He wants us to enter into that. Uh, he wants it to be displayed to all the nations of the world. And it boils down to a fact that God is pretty consumed with Himself. Is that right or is that wrong? I would like to suggest to us that there is uh, something else about God, which is very different from any human being. That's His Trinity. That's His Trinity. God is loving God when God the Father loves God the Son. There is an intra-Trinitarian love. It's happening within the Trinity. Love. And what we're seeing here is the Father is loving the Son in perfection. He has given all. Perfect love, I think, could just simply be redefined as to give all. To give everything. He has given all for the Son. In fact, as we will see shortly, his very redemption of the world was a love gift to the Son. It was a means in order to find a bride for the Son. <clears throat> primarily what it was about. Was it about you and me? It was about you and me. But not, not primarily. That was secondary. Primarily. <clears throat> so God the Father loves, the, loves God the Son. How about God the Son? Does he just absorb all that? Is he selfish with all that? Let's jump down to verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. Wow. This one that's given all authority, all judgment, power of life, uh, all honor. 
Jesus says, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will. Thank you, Martin, for surrender this morning. Uh, you, you filled out a hole in, in this sermon here. <clears throat> surrender. He does not seek his own will. He surrendered that. But the will of the Father which hath sent me. So I am nothing of myself. This one who has been given everything. I'm nothing of myself. He reflects it all back to the Father. Complete circle now. Now there's complete giving both ways. Complete giving both ways. The intra- Trinitarian love. It is indeed the starting point for all of God's love. Before there was any creature to love, God still was love from eternity past. And perfect love loved the members of the Trinity mutually. Of course, in, in all of God's attributes, we see it may be mostly displayed in the Father and the Son. So in love, it's a similar way. But that is not to leave out the Spirit. <clears throat> it's a starting point for all of God's love. I'd like to paint a picture a little bit about eternity past. You know, the very statement that perhaps most uh, evangelical Christians believe is one of maybe the most universal things that we believe, even non-Christians most times, uh, attest to believe this about God. They, they claim to believe this about God, and that's a simple statement that God is love. That should be a non-controversial subject to talk about, right? Well, um, <clears throat> God is love. Let's think about that for a moment. First, that gives us a foundation. Um, that's scripture, that's Bible, that's God speaking. God is love. That's John speaking to us. That is not saying God will be love. It's not just saying God is love now. It is speaking about a reality of what makes up the composition of who God is. So that also means that God was love. If you're talking about was and history for God, how far back do you go? We know God is eternal. He was eternal, is eternal, will be eternal. Eternity past to eternity future. And whatever, as far as God goes, in any capacity or distance or relation of time or quantity, all of his attributes must be there. God is love. So let's go back before the creation of the world. Let's go back before the Genesis 1-1, before God said, let there be light. You know, let's look at Genesis 1-1. It says, in the beginning, God. We know that verse well. It finishes, created the heaven and the earth. But the powerful thing is that before it says created, it says God. In the beginning, God was there. Before the beginning, God was there. Before the beginning, God existed. And if God existed, God was love. And all those qualities of love, all those qualities of giving, they were there. 
The totality of giving. It was there. All the Trinity were there. We have no, no discussion, no teaching about the Trinity evolving or coming to be. All of a sudden it's just obvious. God said, let us make man in our own image. All three of them are talking to each other. We're going to make man in our image. The Trinity existed. God the Father loved the Son. And God the Son loved the Father. Long before the name Jesus came on the scene, long before Jesus was sent into the world, He existed as God the Son in, in, in a reality with God. In this time, place, which none of us can comprehend because we think all in physical terms and, and we could talk, we think about this void, this emptiness, this space. I would propose to you that God brought this world into, be, into being. That next word that comes in that verse, created, was all about because God loved the Son. And the Son loved the Father. God loved Himself. This intra-Trinitarian intra love had to find some expression. It needed a, th- a theater. It needed an environment to work it out. To demonstrate it. In fact, God not only created the theater, but God created the audience. (laughs) That's you and me. And God gets glory from His theater. He gets glory from the audience. Before He created you and me as part of the audience, He created the angels. They're also part of the audience. God's love. What if it would have stopped there? For angels' sake, and for his question, what if it would have stopped there? What if he would have created this perfect world, the Garden of Eden? What if we would still be in the Garden of Eden? Think about it. Put yourself there. You're Adam, or you're Eve. Perfect garden. Everything beautiful. This wonderful relationship with God. Would you know everything about God's love that you know now? Do you know more about God's love than Adam did? Yes? Did God create sin? No. God cannot sin. He cannot create something imperfect. He cannot create something that is less than the best. But God in His perfection, in His knowledge, His perfect knowledge, He could create something that had the power to choose to sin. That was perfection. His, his play in the game was perfection. And it was perfect love. And yes, he knew it was going to cause pain. And yes, he knew it was, there, there was going to be rejection. And yes, he knew that there was going to be a vast majority of humanity that would turn their backs on him. But he embraced not only that possibility, but in his foreknowledge, he embraced that reality because he wanted to show his ability to love in the midst of pain. In response to pain. The possibility that in a changing world, this world is changing, has been dramatically changing ever since the fall. In a changing world, God is still immutable. He is still unchangeable. He still changes not. His love does not change. 
that reality and that perfection, even before the world was created or even after the world was created while it was still in its perfect state, God loves now. It hasn't wavered because of circumstances. Are you drawing some lessons from God's love? Are you making some applications? You know, I can look at points in this past week. My love has wavered. My responses are not always as loving. Does your love waver? Do you respond differently to your spouse one day and the next day? I do. God is our foundation for love. His love does not waver. God, help us to understand who He is. The Father held nothing back, but He gave everything for His Son. The Son is in perfect reciprocal love, says that all He has is what the Father has given Him. Thus, He reflects glory back to the Father, who in consummate generosity holds nothing back. What a beautiful cycle. Turn to John 6, verse 37. We have a powerful verse. All that the Father giveth me, Jesus says, shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So part of these gifts, not only position and power and life and authority and glory and honor, has God given in totality to His Son. But Jesus says that He has given people. We are His gift. The church is His gift. We are His bride. You married men, have you ever gotten a better gift than your bride? Nothing comes close. glad that God gave us marriage in this temporal, though imperfect world, because that, again, teaches us a lot about God's love. I'm sure glad God created this theater and God created this audience. I'm not always proud of what you might see if you would see what's going on in this theater, in my home. But uh, <clears throat> God helps us to understand some of the workings of love so that we can better appreciate the perfection of His We are given to the Father. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. But the point is that the Father gives to the Son. You see, we are a gift. Yes, redemption is a gift for you and I, but we are a gift. Not only do we receive a gift, redemption is more about us being the gift than receiving the gift. John 17, let's go back there again. Verse 10 and 11. Jesus says, All mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to the Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. 
that they may be one as we are one. The reason Jesus goes to such depth of heart and soul and passion about the, the, these people, these disciples, these who have been sanctified and, and their condition and, 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 and their success and their unity and their power and their usefulness and, and in their relationship with God and with each other and to the world, he cares so much about that because they are his bride. They are the biggest gift he's ever been given. That kind of caring and loving stems out of this gift that he has received. And by the way, it's a reciprocal gift now because he says that all mine are thine and thine are mine. I think it's an unending gift that is continually going back and forth between the Father and the Son. There's this love relationship because us being in the middle there somehow, we're caught in the middle in a good way, by the way, and, and we're this gift Going back and forth from the Father to the Son. I don't think that's just an event in history. I believe that is a continual thing. Think about that. How does that impact your life, your role? So, that is the intra-Trinitarian love of God. One more here. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me. He's emphasizing again on the fact of this gift. Those that you gave me, I would that they would be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. The reason I'm concerned about that is for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. There's a lot packed in that verse. There's three scenes that Jesus gives us. The one we already looked at, the scene before the foundation of the world. You love me back there. You love me back there. And he is just on the brink of the next scene, which we could call the consummation. Of God's love. The consummation of sacrifice at the cross. It's on the brink of that. I want these to be with, to be with me where I am. And he jumps ahead. To the future. To the eternity future. The reason. I'm willing to pay this price. So that they can be with me where I am. Because you love me since eternity past. And I want them. Remember the audience? Remember the theater? I want them to behold my glory. Again, which was, which is a gift. That glory which you gave to me. I want them to behold my glory which you've given me. In glory. I want them to be with me where I am. In eternity future. That's the third scene. We'll try to take a little more look at here at the end. <clears throat> In heaven. So the primary intra-Trinitarian love, it leads to the other loves. We're talking about love God's way. Let God define it on His terms. Love God's way. It leads to the intra-Trinitarian love 
the intertrinitarian love leads to all of the other loves. Because God the Father perfectly loved the Son, salvation is planned. He needed to prepare that gift of the bride. The Father in perfect love, He seeks for a bride. That is an expression of the love of the Father to the Son. The Son in perfect love for the Father is willing to pay the immense price for that bride. Yes, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But did you ever stop and think that maybe even that very verse is not talking so much about his love for the world? It was his love for the Son. He loved the world because of his love for the Son. The Son was willing to be obedient. Obedience, love. Just that you can't separate love and giving. can't separate obedience. And love. He was willing to be obedient and go to the cross and pay that price. For all of humanity. Because of the Father. That's what it took to receive the gift from the Father. This involves obeying the Father's will out of love for Him and offers Himself to be the substitute which involves receiving the wrath of God for all who would believe. It involves receiving the judgment of God because of God's other attributes. God has an attribute called holiness. He hates sin. He does not put up with it. He hates sin. He's a just God. Justice will be met. Righteous judgment. His holiness and His his hatred for sin and His judgment, His righteous judgment Those attributes are brought together with the love of God when it comes to paying this bride price. God-loving people, it rises out of God creating people so that He can then redeem a bride for His Son of love. I know a little bit about bride prices. Maybe us people in Western culture could uh, learn a little more about bride prices. In our village, probably the average woman goes for about three cows. Sometimes five, sometimes two, sometimes one. And so my wife can tell you a story. She's down at the well and she's uh, at the water hole and she's doing laundry and they're talking and she hears over here the other women talking and they're talking with her and they, they're saying, well, yeah, I, uh, my husband had to pay two cows for me. Oh, well, my husband paid three. Oh, that's nothing. My husband paid five. Look over at my wife. This has happened to her many times. How much did, well, how much was your bride price? What would you say? <clears throat> Would you just feel a little bit in fear? Well, 
He didn't pay any cows for me. No. I believe sometimes maybe we don't have it so physically illustrated. Maybe we lack a bit in that way. But uh, I believe in a Christian setting, the bride price should be giving everything. Lay down his life. That's what the teaching is in Ephesians 5. Is that right? Lay down your life. Just like Jesus laid down his life for his bride, husbands are laid down their lives for their bride. Yep. <clears throat> of course, that gets a little bit deep. Not quite as tangible for them. But I've been at many uh, marriage negotiations. I actually um, did, the, did the negotiations in the place of a father in one, one, one setting. <clears throat> and what are you going to give? What's the bride price going to be? And there's bartering and there's negotiations and uh, there's wiggling and there's trying to not pay as much as they initially asked. First, it's 20 cows and they eventually get down to about three to five cows. But those women that got a uh, bride price of three to five cows, uh, they uh, kind of hush up once when the Sukuma lady comes down the trail with her ox cart to fill up with some barrels of water uh, because they know that she she went for 20 cows. There are stories of 50, 60 cows. <clears throat> bride price. It has something to do with uh, how much a woman feels valued, right? Yeah, very literally. We can, we can see those illustrations. So, uh, here's a, an application, men. Are you living out Ephesians 5? Are you paying the price we're instructed to pay to give your life, to give everything Does your wife not feel valued? Keep your fingers out of the cog, men. How much she feels valued has something to do with how much you're living out Ephesians 5. That, we would say, is a foundational type of love. Category number one, the intra-Trinitarian love. Category number two, God's love for all of humanity. There is a love for God which is unconditional. Is God's love unconditional? Yes and no. (laughs) So now we're starting to answer that question, does God love The homosexual. God's love for all of humanity. This is category number two. There is a love. And I'm emphasizing a. There is a type of love which is unconditional. Does not mean that it is ultimate. Okay? There's a difference. Unconditional means it is available and it is being poured out on all of humanity no matter if you meet the conditions or not. God's love is being poured out. There is a love. In fact, we're going to look at four different types of love that comes in this category, this love for all of humanity. <clears throat> but it's not ultimate. There is an ultimate. There is a deeper love beyond that, which does not apply to homosexual. <clears throat> Titus 3.4 says that it is limitless. It is limitless in the sense that it is indiscriminate. 
without you meeting any conditions, without you doing anything, God loves you. Indiscriminate. Matthew 5, verse 44, says this. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Instruction to us that we should do something something in like manner as God does. Love your enemies. This type of love, there is an agape love which applies to everyone. And in its sense of being a sacrificial love, it is the deepest. Okay? Not the ultimate. But in the sense of being the sacrificial love, it is the deepest. What love, Jesus said, can, can, is greater than a man laying down his life for his friend. <clears throat> and Jesus did that for all of humanity, providing for all of humanity. You know, the ungodly are, are enemies of God. They are an enmity with God. <clears throat> we are to love in the same way. All of humanity... The person that stepped, that drives out in front of you came this close to wrecking just the other day. Someone just missed a stop sign. Can't blame him. He probably didn't see me, but <clears throat> sometimes people do it on purpose. Someone who just, to get his advantage, to get his edge, he just slights you a little bit. We all have those things happen. Someone who feels hurt in a relationship and their response is to hurt you back. And you know, when that starts going back and forth, it always gets worse. You unknowingly hurt someone. They thought they didn't give you the benefit of the doubt. So they, they do something you can tell. You know, it's, it's purposeful. And it's back and forth. Loving your enemies. Loving someone who purposefully does something against you. <clears throat> God's love does that for all of humanity. He loves. <clears throat> So four ways in which God's love is unconditional. First, there is common grace. Here in this uh, same passage, verse 45, um, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, sendeth his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Go beyond just being friends with those who are friends with you. Go beyond just returning the favor. Anybody can do that. Even the most wicked and hypocritical people can do that. Be like your Father. He's laid the example. Again, our foundation for love is God's love. Look at his example. He gives common grace. It's a sense of goodwill kind of love that God gives to every person. Common grace. Uh, For example, not only you, but your godless neighbor this morning woke up. And the sun was shining bright. And it's beautiful outside. And you can go to walk and enjoy the beautiful leaves. And there's people all around us who have a good life. They get up, they smell the coffee just like you do. That is a gift from God. It's love from God. It's grace. They draw a breath. That's common grace. Have a good breakfast. Have a rewarding career. Have good family relationships. 
Godless people experience all of those things. Have food to eat on their table. Moon shines full and bright. Beautiful. God is caressing the world with lovely things. Just and the unjust. Side by side. <clears throat> that is a common grace type of love. There's a love of compassion. Ezekiel 18.32 Universal pity and grief over lost souls. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Jeremiah 13. God tells Jonah, after Jonah is remorseful about the fact that God saved Nineveh, God reasons with Jonah, he says these words, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? See, Jonah lacks something about the understanding God. His attributes. Or at least he lacked uh, applying and copying and following that example. God had compassion on Nineveh. This kind of compassion, Jesus, in Matthew 23, 37, says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I gather as a hen gathers her chicks. That was through the whole city. The whole people of Israel. Those who he knew were going to reject him and even crucify him. Included. He looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept. Compassionate tears. Jesus wept at Lazarus' uh, funeral. His sealed grave. Where he had been decaying for three days. Why did he weep? Did he weep because he wished he could have had one more conversation with his friend? Did he weep because he knew that, uh, that he's never going to see his friend again? Of course not. Jesus knew all things. He wept with compassion over all of humanity right there. What this was representing. The power of death. He wept. <clears throat> compassion could be defined as this. It is something that is not motivated by the present value of someone, but the lost value. Compassion. The tears, the regret over what could be. It weren't for this lost value. God's love is revealed through his incessant warnings to the wicked. That is a love gift, an opportunity, warning. 1 Timothy 4.10, God is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. God is the savior of all men in the physical and temporal sense, and that he withholds from them the punishment that they so deserve, giving them opportunity to repent. The wicked, today, one more time, have an opportunity to repent. There's an opportunity. God might divinely give in your lap to meet with that person and confront them with their need. Adam was warned, in the day you shall eat thereof, you shall surely die. And he ate. And he died in his relationally with God. The curse of sin came on him and he began to age at that time. In that sense, he died that day. But do you know what? He lived 900 years after that. 900 years of God's love every day being poured out upon him. <clears throat> Opportunity. Incessant warning. Romans 2, we get the message 
Well, God says something like this. In other words, he says, are you taking advantage of the riches of goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And of course, fourthly, God's love that applies to all of humanity is the gospel offer. There is opportunity. There is opportunity for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter how much wickedness you've done, no matter uh, what sins you've committed. There is opportunity. God's love for mankind is broadest sense. It's revealed in his incessant and extensive offer of the gospel. Romans 1, God reveals that gospel to everyone through his creation. In some form, he reveals that gospel to everyone so that everyone is without excuse. There's this interesting statement, the gospel is in them. There is something in you. Sometimes we call it the hole in the heart, the longing. There is something in you which God planted, no matter if you've never heard a man stand up and explain the gospel message crystal clear or not. There is something in you which resonates with a seeking. It's a law that's written in our hearts, like it says in Romans chapter 2. In a sense, there is a path that is built in every heart, which when it is followed, it will lead to truth. Every sinner who believes in Jesus will be pardoned and saved. What love is that? That is love. Yes, that is love for the homosexual. Does God love the homosexual? Does God love the sinner and hate the sin? John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Therefore, we are to go to the ends of the earth with this message. We are to go to the ends of the earth because of this kind of love. Which, remember, is based in the intra-Trinitarian love. I would say 90% of the time that someone asks the question, does God not love the sinner and hate the sin? The answer is no. Because what is being implied and what is being asked, will God not just take me as I am? Can I, can I not just keep on living my life the way I am? There is a love which does not apply to you. <clears throat> There's a third category of love. That's God's love for his own those who make that choice, those who do believe. Yes, God genuinely loves the world and God loves his own in all those same ways that he loves all of the world. That love has no limit in extent. It applies to everyone, but it has a limit in degree. There is a depth. There is a love which he reserves for his own. His love for his own is eternal and it is limited. It is limited in extent. It it does not extend to those who do not believe, those who are not his own. But it is unlimited in its degree. Hallelujah. 
you and I are the ones that can experience God's truly limitless love in its degree, in its magnitude, in its depth. It is conditional. You have to meet the conditions. It is conditional. When someone, people ask the question, does God love the sinner and hate, uh, and hate the sin? What needs to be emphasized is, yes, God will love the sinner. But God, the Bible does not say God just throws the sin into hell. There is heresy like that. God tells us that he throws the sinner into hell. So in that sense, no. In the sense that God loves his own, God does not love the sinner. That's reserved for his own. Let's take one look, John 13, verse 1, just to get a little glimpse at how God loves his own. Then we're going to go to Revelations and get a final scene, final picture. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. I've often thought that this was talking about, and he's at the end of his life, right? He managed to keep loving those disciples right up until the end of his ministry. But as I thought deeper on this, I think there is a powerful application here. Obviously, his own applies much broader than just to his disciples. It, it applies to all of his, his saints, to all of his bride. <clears throat> he loved his own. He loved them to the end. In other words, he loved them to the max. He loved them to the end of his capacity to love them. What is the end of God's capacity to love? See, there's a limit for all the other people in the world. It can be defined. We can look at scripture. We can go you know, more, more detail than what we did today. But you got a picture today. There's a limit there. There's a fence. There's a such a sad limit that it's going to still not be good far enough to withhold his wrath that will come on them. Even though his wrath has been poured out, the wrath and the judgment and the love of God have come together in perfection. They meet in perfection, all three of those. The only place I believe they can meet is at the cross. It's the only place where all three of those make sense. The judgment, the wrath, his holiness, his perfection, his demand for payment for sin, and yet his love. It's all poured out at the cross. It's been provided for. So those who refuse that provision, it's limited, it's cut off. But for his own, he loved them to the end of his capacity to love. And yes, God's love is limitless. So that's a bit of a misnomer there. His, there is no end to his capacity to love. At least we can't understand it today. I hope that one day we see him face to face, we'll have a little bit more revelation of it. <clears throat> he loved them to the end. Let's uh, look at how Jesus talks to Peter a little bit here. Just refer here to the, the time there where after uh, Jesus was risen from the dead, he had a rendezvous with his disciples in Galilee. 
And he met Peter. And he challenged Peter with these words. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. He went on three times. Asking the same question, do you love me? Every time Peter responded, yes, I love you. But you know what? Perhaps this sheds a little light on why this repeated questioning. Peter had just denied him. Peter had not only denied him in word, but Peter had gone back home. He went in direct contradiction to the commandment of his Lord Jesus. His Lord said, Terry, wait for me in Galilee. He had gone home. He had given up. He did not obey. So Jesus did not ask him, Peter, are you going to obey me? No. He said, do you love me? There's that connection. Love and obedience. He had gone home. So they met up again. And every time after he says, I love you, he gave him a commandment. You notice that? He's making that connection between love and obedience. Peter, do you love me? But Peter was his own. Peter was his own. God loved him in spite of his failure. He had not received the Holy Spirit yet. We who have the Holy Spirit, we sure count on that love, that eternal everlasting, enduring, pick up again, after failure kind of love, don't we? We sure do. John 18, verses 1 to 9, we could look at his protection for his own. In John 17, he uses those words, Father, I kept them, now you keep them. Now you keep them. There is a preservation for his own. Here's a definition for love. An earnest, an anxious, desire for, and an active, beneficent interest in the well-being of the one loved. Love identifies itself emotionally with its object. That is a Bible dictionary definition for love. It hints at God's kind of love. It hints at love God's way. Love. In that definition, you don't find any requirement of reciprocation, do you? Do you? That is the way that God is calling us to love all man. Psalm 8, what is man thou art mindful of him that you have set your attention on him? Only through the cross can God's love for man, his holy hatred for sin, his righteousness for judgment come together. These attributes and many more are exalted and displayed through the cross. Let's make a little bit of application now. So, here we are. John 17, verse 26. I'm giving them your name. I'm displaying it for them. So that the love with the us, love me, may be in them. All the attributes of God are things that we grapple with. Even in our human relationships. We see injustices. How do you love that perpetrator of injustices? There's a call within us that wants justice. And sometimes it's the punch the guy in the nose kind of feeling, like we heard about. Retribution. 
That's not right. There's got to be consequences for that. That's a God thing. That's not wrong. But boy, it would be a different picture, wouldn't it? If we look at God and that's all we would see, and there'd be none of His love. There's a holiness, a desire for purity. How can someone mess up the purity of that little girl? And what makes the cross bring all these three three things together is the sacrifice, the selflessness. So how is that going to apply for me? The only way I can bring these things together, the only way I can reconcile these things, the only way I can relate to all these different situations in our world today, and these different relationships, sometimes people wrong me, sometimes I see someone wrong someone else, and I think this is a holy and righteous indignation coming up in me, because I'm not, I haven't been wrong, that's not against me, it's just the righteousness which I think needs to be vindicated. That is a right feeling. But it's got to come together with love, God's way. There's a Christian and, and, and he's compromising and, and, and he's, he's watering down God's word and, and he's messing with scripture and he's confusing young people and I get vehement about that and something stirs within me. That, that's right. But I can still relate to that person with love God's way. How? They gotta come together. Where are they gonna come together for Jesus, for God? They came together at the cross for both the Father and the Son. How are they going to come together for me? Take up my cross and follow him. That's why, if in my righteous indignation, I, I, I look back and say, well, something wasn't right about how I responded there. There was some self there. Well, the truth is, there wasn't the love meeting there. You see, if the love comes in and meets there, then it's selflessness. Then it's laying down self. There's no self there. The only time I respond wrong is if there's some self. The answer is way too simple, beloved, though it's, it's limitlessly deep. It is the cross. God, help me to take up my cross and bring these, these different attributes, these different aspects of, of God's word and even, even of who he is and apply them to my life. So to love God's way, I need to give sacrificially. So to love God's way, I need to demonstrate love with obedience. Remember Peter and the thrice questioning that Jesus gave him? To love God's way, I will love in spite of rejection. Here's an application. Let's think about this in all of our relationships. The Christian life, I would put forth to you today, is not all about relationships. Oh, but the Christian life is all about relationships. I would like to say the Christian life is not all about relationships. The Christian life is all about a relationship, amen, with Jesus. But you know what? Sometimes in my relationship, even with another brother or sister, we here today have situations. You do. I do. If you don't, you have. If you don't, you will. Where there's a brother There's a sister that has failed me. Think about how you have failed God. That brother has hurt me. And if it's all about relationships, I can even feel like some kind of righteous way. I've forgiven him and everything's fine, but there's this broken relationship, right? It's all about relationships. Brother, sister, it's not all about relationships. It's about a relationship. That gives you the ability 
to actually restore and have intimacy and fellowship with your brother, with your sister? In spite of the hurt, in spite of the breakdown, in spite of the bad, crazy cycle that has happened in your life? Love God's way. That's love. Have it God's way. Don't have it your way. Love your brother. Love your sister. God's way. It's about one relationship with God. And that relationship connects us to his love. His kind of love. In John 17. For the person. Write down Ezekiel 16 and study how that God loved the people of Israel. In spite of taking them out of their depravity and their their helplessness and making them beautiful bride for himself and they rejected him in adultery. Look at that one sometime. To love God's way, I will need to take up my cross so that I too can find resolution for that holiness and that judgment together with the love like Jesus did on his cross. In closing, there's a story by uh, Kate McCord gives in her book that speaks to us about loving like Jesus did. She served many years in Afghanistan. One day, she was sitting with a circle of ladies and hearing, they were having tea together and they were sharing. And one of them brought up a story of what recent thing that happened this last week and they said, my, my niece came back home. You know, that niece that was taken by the warlords several months ago, she's deranged. That young, beautiful girl just past puberty. She's been taken by the warlords and she was just passed around to his men for the last few months. She's come back and she's lost her mind. And Kate's sitting there and she hears that. And her love for the purity of God and the purity that he has put into, into human beings and her love for righteousness, her, her love for right judgment and her understanding of these beautiful and right things about God, her love for that, little, for that young girl and her empathy with these relatives as they feel this pain makes her cry out in anguish. She walks out of that little meeting and gets a taxi and gets in the taxi and she's going down the road and she begins to sense by this man's conduct uh, what he's wearing but more so just by what she can sense from his spirit. She starts talking with him and he has some small talk and she says, uh, you were one of those warlords in that uh, army, weren't you? He doesn't respond but his shoulders sink. And uh, she asks him again and he sits down in his seat. And all what she just heard begins to well up inside of her. All this horrible feelings. How can a, a, how can a man perpetrate this kind of wickedness and hurt? And uh, she begins to think about that. But God's love comes. And shows her how to love the perpetrator just like she loved the perpetrated Love the abuser just like she loved the abused just a few minutes earlier. And emotionally identify with him. Earnest, anxious desire for active, benefit, beneficent interest in the well-being of the one loved. A love that identifies itself emotionally with its object. She actually feels the same identity with him she felt with her. 
And she sees the weight, the burden of guilt and sin. He believes his Muslim religion that Allah cannot forgive him for killing a man until one of his relatives has forgiven him. He believes that Allah teaches that God cannot forgive him for raping a woman until his, her father or her husband or her brother forgives him. So he's stumped. She gets out of the car and she says, you were one of those warlords. And he nods. And she shares the love of God with him. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But God speaking, loving God's way, that's what love will do for us. You go to the end of our Bible. You see an invitation. When I love God's way, I will be experiencing intimacy with God and his people being a part of that bride. That John, the revelator, gets to see here. And you will join with the Spirit in verse 17 saying, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. May that motivate you. This love, God's way. May it motivate you in all of your relationships. May it motivate you to get up tomorrow morning. May it motivate you to speak to the person at the gas station. May it motivate me. God, so help me, God. May it be my motivation to go to Mbeah. May it be a motivation of one of your young men to learn Arabic and go to Turkey. Put your life on the line. <clears throat> May it motivate you to love your husband. God's way. May God bless you all.